my okay. This is the love service, uh, and it's once a year, and it it got started about ten years ago when uh, I was on the Worship Associates Committee at the time with Dawn, Reverend Dawn Sangri. She was our first minister. And she, she was the one who said, oh, I know a service that is, was very successful in my church in Mount Kisco. And I, she told us about it. And she said it was um, people telling uh, this, the congregation about somebody they loved and uh, how it affected them and how important it was in their lives. So I thought this was a very interesting uh, service and I said, oh, I'll try it. And little did I know I'd be stuck with it for, <laughs> for years, years to come. <laughs> it's my service. <laughs> Anyway, I, it's, a, it's a joy to do, it really is. And uh, it is a glimpse in people's lives. It really is, it's wonderful sharing. So uh, today we have five people who are willing to participate. And um, Sharon Bowman, I would like people to sit in the front row here and you choose when, in what order you want to do it. I, you know, I'm not going to say, oh, you've got to do it now or that. Anyway, so Sharon Bowman, um, Ingrid Smith, Susan Shefflin, Eric Brown, and Brenda Perry Herrera. Is that it? That, did I say all five? Okay. All right, so they will give us a little talk about something they saw or somebody they loved, and it's, I'm looking forward to it. So, okay. Okay, um, so I had a dog I love so much named Finney. He was sweet, loving, very happy. He was the perfect dog. Sadly, Finney died. Two years later, I started looking for another dog, and I found one that looked like Finney, and then I found out from the shelter that he was from Southern Ohio, which was where Finney was from. And I got very excited, and I thought this was a sign that Finney was leading me to him. I named this puppy Quincy and brought him home, and instead of getting a puppy, I thought I had gotten a little dragon-like creature. All, <laughs> all he wanted to do was bite, chew, tear things up. I did puppy one and puppy two classes, and it helped a little, <laughs> and he was still wild. Lots of long walks and ball throwing and tug of war. 
I heard about dog agility classes at a local shelter, so I signed up. There had been something magical. There has been something magical that has happened to our relationship and to his personality during the two years we've been doing this. There are tunnels and tires for Quincy to jump through, high bridges for him to climb over and walk, walk over, weave poles to weave through and jumps to go over while I run alongside him. I love the teacher. She is endlessly patient, funny, and smart, and she devotes herself to the love and caring of the dogs in the shelter and in the classes. At first, you do one obstacle at a time, and now we've worked up to doing a whole routine. The process of doing these classes every Saturday morning has created more trust, communication, and bonding. We have had to work together as a team, and I have had to learn to be more commanding in a gentle way, and we are more physically strong. I am so proud and amazed that we are doing this. It has been a journey. In fact, there has been a miraculous change for the better since our difficult beginning. So I can truly say that I love Quincy. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ingrid Smith. I'm actually really nervous about this because I thought this is, it's a tough topic. It was a tough topic. Um, I'm lucky in our family that we don't have history of diabetes or cancer in either side, my side or my husband's side. But on both sides, there's definitely a history of mental illness, <clears throat> especially mood disorders, not so much of the other kinds, personality disorders or violence. Or, um, but it does... It's, you know, it's not my husband and sort of not me, but it's <laughs> um, <laughs> sort of. Well, you can see, like, my anxiety will play through in this. Um, and I, but, but there's a lot we've had to deal with over the, you know, over our lives together with our, with our families and friends. So um, I just wanted to share some of this. Um, I called it When Someone You Love Has Mental Illness. When someone you love has mental illness, life is ever-changing. Your loved one may look normal, act normal most of the time, but really is not in, when you see them. When you love someone with mental illness, you are always on the edge. You jump when you see the, their number on your caller ID and sigh with relief when their voice is upbeat. You know from the first breath that they take if they are okay or not. When you love someone with a mental illness, and by the way, this is a compilation. This isn't just one person. When you love someone with a mental illness, you know what to look for, what to listen for, when you speak to them, and when you look at them. When they're having a good day, you are having a good day. And when they're not, you do nothing but worry. When they get upset and frustrated, you cannot be upset and frustrated because it can make the situation worse. When you love someone with mental illness, you have to be a good listener because sometimes they just want to talk. And you can't cut them off. You can't hang up the phone. Because what if you did? You were continually asking about meds and therapy. You were continually worried about meds and therapy. Is it working? Are they self-medicating with drugs and alcohol? If you, can't have you cannot have issues of your own because you are the healthy one. When you love someone with mental illness, you hope every day they will turn out fine, that they will manage the meds and things will be fine. You keep hoping and hoping. 
When you love someone with mental illness, you have to hold back your frustrations because most people can do the simple things, and your loved one maybe cannot. You fight to say the phrase, if only you could just buck up, stop crying, see things differently. When you love someone with mental illness, you need to find your own people as well, people who understand what you're going through, people who can help support you and your loved one. Sharing is very important. Sometimes you find out that others are going through the same thing you are, but you never knew because mental health is often not spoken about as like a broken arm. You always wonder if you are doing the right thing regarding your loved one. Can you do more? Should you do less? You worry about their children. Are they getting enough? Will they grow up thinking, wow, my parent was crazy? Or will they really realize that their parent really was just doing the best that they could? When you love someone with mental illness, it's very hard to take a break in your life. Go on vacation, shut off the phone. The feeling of responsibility is always there. But the good times are there too, and there are plenty of up times as well. The up times may last for weeks or months. They may last forever. You have a million little achievements, a million joys, and every moment is precious. When you love someone with mental illness, life is a roller coaster, usually more ups and downs, more flying than sinking, and all you can do is just love and love them. So thanks to Dorothy for putting this together. I, it seems like it's been going on much longer than 10 years. So um, the, um, I started off with a question, and I thanked Dorothy just now, but really if you ask yourself, if Dorothy asks you to do something, can you say no? no. So really, did I have a choice? <laughs> thank, you any, thank you anyway. So I had a good, uh, I thought I had a good handle on what I was going to say. Um, and over the course of the week, you know, thinking about whether I should wax poetic about the lack of love in the world, which seemed a little bit dark, um, or whether I should just spend the time embarrassing Pam Cook about uh, waxing poetic about our relationship. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I was sort of lost uh, until a chance conversation with a friend of mine who shared with me a quote from a 16th or 17th century, a 16th, 17th century rabbi. Her name is Jane Tim. The rabbi's name is Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who talked about, I'm not going to read the quote because it's way too long, and I didn't test this for time, um, that the world is full of strife as a condition, and that strife happens between countries. It filters down to community strife. It filters down to familial strife and strife between people, and the basis of that strife is the internal conflicts that we have between you know, the parts of ourselves that, are in, uh, that don't seem to match up or in conflict and present themselves every day. Um, there's a appropriated quote from that people say it's Cherokee, but no one really knows where it comes from. People also say that Billy Graham just made it up and tried to attribute it to people about the two wolves and the one wolf is evil, and the one wolf is good, and the you know, indigenous father or grandfather says to his uh, grandchild, well, which one will win? And he's asked, he said, it's the one that you feed. Um, but when you look deeper into that, it talks less about the one that you feed and more about managing both. And it's not about winning. 
which is a very Western thing, but it's about managing the conflict and how each part of yourself gives you a fuller and more complete sense of self. How does that relate to love? It's not as dark as it seems. In my life, as I'm reaching middle age and thinking about why I am the way that I am, I think that there are three really large portions of my life where love played a really big role in helping me manage and grow as a person. I wish I could take credit for it, but um, I can't. Um, The first one, so there are three. Uh, My parents. I got a great foundation for what it means to love every day from finding notes that my dad would leave for my mom and how my mom would continually break the, let's not get each other Christmas gifts uh, this year for my dad. It's a rule she made up herself, but every Christmas morning, my dad would open some extravagant gift and then the look of pain on his face is like, I only got you like a set of pencils. It took him years to catch on to the fact that she was just saying that. It's just the way that they manifest love for each other and that she, my mom really loves shopping and as Pam knows, she really loves sales. So it's, she couldn't help herself, and she just thought, thinks about him all the time. The fact that my brother and I, we never had the chance to have an evening alone because my parents were always at home. They never seemed to, like, we're going to go out with the Johnsons tonight, or we're going to go, you know, go see a movie, because they always just seemed to enjoy hanging out with each other. And it doesn't really do much for uh, teenage mayhem, but um, <laughs> as I got older, I realized that that seeing that every day, seeing that example sets the template for what you think love and a partnership should be. And it doesn't really do that much for dating in your teenage and, you know, roaring 20s. But now I think it's, (laughs) I feel like it's a much bigger benefit. Uh, It's the best advice that they never had to give me. Um, The other form of love is one that I received from my band director. His name is Edward J. Sheely. He passed away a couple of years ago. And he showed me about the kind of love that show that comes from outside of the obligatory love or the familial realm, like the love that I share with my brother. But it's very deep, but he's my brother. So um, it's the kind of love that can build your esteem because it's given to you because of who you are, not because of where you come from or who your parents are. And he showed this to me from simple things like believing more in my talent than I did when I was in high school and to the joys and sorrows that are associated with music competitions and concerts. And how our group of, our group of band people would make fun of him when we were sitting in his office because he'd yell at us with his feet up on the desk and he'd be swigging Maalox out of the bottle because we would just wreck his nerves. Um, and looking back, it was really one of the biggest parts was that he would let us eat lunch in the band room when we were a group of socially awkward teenagers. And I think he sort of sensed this. And so the band room was always open for us to just go there and be ourselves and not have to be bothered about being someone else. I only recently realized this, that he loved me, and he showed me that it was even more special than it seemed on its face. And I realized that Mr. Sheely was one of the first adults in my life who loved me even though he didn't have to. He loved me because of who I was and no other reason. And once you accept that kind of love fully, it changes you, and it forces you to grow in ways that you can't even really understand. So I actually do get to embarrass Pam Cook a little bit. The third kind of love 
is the one that you have to put in practice every day. And that's scary because it's big and weighty and it causes you not only to want to be a better person, but it demands that you try to be your best self every day. If you meet friends like this as a young adult and stay connected, as you're making your way through these inevitable peaks and valleys of joys and disappointments associated with that time, and if you're lucky enough to get someone to decide to spend the rest of your life with you, you take on the responsibility and joy of not only being your best self, but helping them be their best self, even if they're far better than you'll ever be. The third kind of love I've found in my friend Pam Cook is sometimes the hardest, but it's the most rewarding because I know that even when I fail, the foundation that my parents and my brother's love gave me and the confidence from Mr. Sheely's love allowed me to chance to do the work of accepting and the accepting the love that Pam and I are trying to practice every day. And in a world full of struggles inside and out, it's the love that I appreciate the most. When I was asked to speak about love, um, I said, uh, why me? Why, uh, what do I know about love? Um, but instead of declining, I have taken it as a necessary challenge um, to have some serious introspection about the quality of my love for others, particularly the loved ones closest to me. Um, it is said that uh, Love is patient, love is kind, love is never rude, it's uh, never irritable. And well, I must not be loving because I am <laughs> all those things. I, I'm guilty of not being patient, not being kind, being rude. And um, so, you see, I've always had uh, what I call heart problems, um, not medically, um, heart chakra, emotional, sh uh, emotional blocks, whatever you want to call it. And that's due to the age-old phrase of, you can't love anyone until you love yourself. And I never really knew what that meant until I started to question, why is it that we treat our loved ones that we're supposed to love and honor the most worse than we do even strangers? Why do we exercise certain tones and actions that we would not otherwise use on, on a stranger? Is it the pre-programming of childhood that triggers all the kinds of responses with those that we're most comfortable with? Like when we're too tired to be our best selves and the ugly side of our ego shows. Yes, I can actually admit that I have taken it personally when my dear loving husband forgets to do something that I ask, which is then translated into my mind as he must not really care about what I have to say, I must be invisible. Um, or my child not wanting to eat his dinner that I so carefully prepared uh, is, is mentally translated into he must not appreciate all I do for him. Oh, no, I will not raise a little brat, an ungrateful little brat. 
thus ending in unnecessary power struggles and turning into uh, turning the wonderful moments of love and peace into fighting and yelling. However, when I catch myself and become aware, usually after the fact, I realize that it is just pre-programmed thoughts that turn into feelings that turn into behavior. I never consider myself much of a sensitive person because I do not cry easily, tend to hide my pain with a smile, <laughs> and become highly uncomfortable demonstrating any kind of vulnerability, such as now. Um, but as they say, light, light comes in through the cracks. So I'm, t I'm making an exception now, which is why I'm highly uncomfortable right at the moment. Um, yet, somehow I married one of the most sensitive people that I've ever met. If anybody should be speaking about love, it should be Renee. His love is so genuine and uniquely open. When I met him, he scared me a bit, um, as he was someone who wore his heart on his sleeve, and, was, and I was frightened because I thought, why is he so nice to me? What? Why is he trying to butter me up for? <laughs> but that has not changed. I remember for my birthday, the first year we were together, he took me to a very nice restaurant in the city. It made me feel very uncomfortable because I knew that he could not afford it at the time. But the gesture said it all. Even though he put his heart where his wallet was, he was determined to lavish me with a lovely dinner. That's Renee always giving everything he has and more to those he loves and cares about. Actually, he does that to, for everyone, strangers and friends alike. That's just who he is. It is said that there's five languages of love. Mine is mostly labor. What I do for my loved ones is how I show my love the most. As that is how my mother showed her affection. She wouldn't say much, uh, I love you, as much as she, would, as she would make something special with her own two hands or she would or take care of us with the best quality of her love. I can actually say that Renee is the one who has taught me how to love with more affection and warmth in, war in word and action. Loving freely and completely with abandon despite the consequences of non-reciprocation, much the way that we love our children. Loving them regardless of whether or not they love us back. But I did not know what love was until, we, until I had our son. That's when it really hit me. I learned the meaning of unconditional love. That perfect little angel melted all the icy barriers of my heart immediately. I could tell when I could not stop crying uncontrollably, uncontrollably in the operating room seconds after he was born that there was nothing he could ever do that would make me stop loving him. With Eric, there could never be enough kisses and hugs and that I give him and never enough cuddles, and never, never enough tickles or laughs, never enough dancing and singing together, or never enough time together. Even with all the nuances and challenges of raising an atypical child, I would not wish him to be any different than exactly who he is. Since Eric was weeks old, I have been on a soul search on how to be the best, how to best love my loved ones. And the answer always comes back to, you can't love anyone until you love yourself. One thing I notice about the days that I am not so loving, compassionate, and forgiving to myself, I'm exactly that to my loved ones. When we soften ourselves, we soften up with others. That, that is why the theme for this year for me has been self-love, self-compassion, so I can 
better, so I can have a better quality of love for and compassion for my loved ones. I have recently realized that I am actually a very sensitive person who just deflects her feelings to avoid pain and thereby also depriving myself of pleasure as well. I have been questioning why God has put these two amazing people in my life, my husband and my son, with all their wonderful quirks and atypicalities. And God keeps reminding me every day they are my biggest teachers. I am challenged to become a better person every day because of them. I grow because of them, and I am so blessed to have them in my life. I am the lucky one. I feel so honored, so honored to be part of this program. Dorothy, thank you for asking me. I have been through um, a siege of cancer recently, and the doctor who cured me, and yes, he gave me the all clear, Dr. Veach. I am so happy to be alive, and I was going to speak about him this morning, but Dorothy, like Eric, I'm changing my direction a little bit, and my what I want to do, and I'll tell you why. Last night, I watched a documentary called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And this guy appeared in that documentary, and it was beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I want to urge you to see it if you haven't seen it. And so this morning, I woke up, and I was thinking, Oh my God, you have a Mr. Rogers. You have to talk about your Mr. Rogers. Um, something happened during the documentary last night. I just, I was weeping copiously, copiously. And my husband asked me, why are you crying? And I, I thought I had to think about it. But this morning, when I looked up an article about this documentary, the name of the article is, won't you be my neighbor? This is why you can't stop crying over the biggest documentary of the year. So I found out why I was crying. But let me tell you about my Mr. Rogers, because that's really, he is the love of my life, was the love of my life, and is the love of my life. And sometimes you see in obituaries uh, where spouses write about their spouses, they always say they were together 50 years, she was the love of his life, he was the love of her life. Well, this man, I am going to describe my Mr. Rogers, is my grandfather. His dates, of, this is very significant because uh, his birthday is tomorrow. He was born February the 11th. Uh, he lived from 1880. I'm gonna pass this around uh, when I finish, but so you can see it, because there's a little picture of me hugging him right there. Um, 1880 to 1972. And uh, this is a man who never entered a church. I'm not sure, I mean, he must have been married in a church, but he never went to church. He didn't preach any kind of gospel. He, he didn't um, uh, preach any kind of, of moral system but he just lived and was the most, I'll have to say Christian, but just 
everything that's good about any religion was what he was. Absolutely, without question, he lived um, a beautiful, and like Mr. Rogers was a minister and had a college education. My grandfather just graduated from high school. He didn't have a college education. He wasn't a minister, but he was the most beautiful soul. And what he, I, in seeing Mr. Rogers last night, I realized that what he had was complete, unconditional love, absolutely unconditional. He was there any time in my childhood that I ever needed him. And I'm so glad that Ingrid talked about mental illness this morning because I had a mother who was mentally ill and lots of times she would fly off the handle and I would feel inferior, insecure, scared, all the things that Mr. Roger was talking about last night with children. Um, that's the way I would feel. And he would, my grandfather was always there to put his arm around me, to encourage me, to give me the love that I needed to know I was okay, because I didn't think I was okay. And I will just, I will talk about, there you can pass it around, if you want to. I will just talk about this one experience um, the experience was that of a Christmas. I was about 10 years old, nine, nine or 10 years old, or maybe even a little younger. And my mother was going through a very bad siege and she flipped out and started throwing things at me. This is on Christmas day. So I have real mixed feelings about Christmas. She started throwing things at me, and um, one of the things she threw was a bottle of ketchup. Um, and uh, my father saw this, and he thought I had blood all over me. Uh, so he yelled to me, go upstairs, go upstairs. This was his way of dealing with things. He turned the table over, if you can imagine that, and yelled to me to go upstairs, which I ran upstairs, and I jumped into bed, and I put the covers over my head. And I cried and cried, and nobody came. And finally, finally, uh, there was a tap on the door, and there was my grandfather. Uh, and he came in and sat down on the bed, and he said, um, you have to forgive your mother because she is, uh, she can't help herself. And uh, I, I said, well, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And he put his arms around me and hugged me and he said, you don't have to do anything but just be who you are because you are the most beautiful person. You are the most wonderful person in the world and I love you so much and just be who you are. I just want to thank everyone on the panel for the wonderful uh, sharing and openness. And it's important, I think, to keep this service going <laughs> every year because it's such a wonderful thing to, to uh, 
what it brings out in people. It's amazing. Thank you very much for sharing.